Well, actually, it's brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know MMA ticket prices tend to drop right before the event starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals, with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. Or to get into the fight. Or the concert. Or the musical. See, when it comes to sweet ticket deals, sports aren't the only area in which GameTime has got you covered. And the best part? The process is simple, it's quick, and two taps, you are done. So head to the App Store or Play Store now to download GameTime and score awesome deals on last-minute tickets. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Well Actually, the athletic MMA's podcast about MMA and other stuff. UFC 244 happened this past Saturday at Madison Square Garden in New York, but I'm pretty sure I do not have to tell you that. Nor do I have to tell you that Jorge Masvidal won the night's big prize, the BMF title, after beating fellow headliner Nate Diaz. The result came via doctor stoppage due to some nasty cuts on Diaz's face, but as anticlimactic as that was, Masvidal was obviously winning the fight up until that point and he still got to have his shiny moment. He got to have The Rock place the belt around his waist and apparently for some people it matters that the um, dude who was voted into office in the United States was there to watch. Oh well, to each their own. Anyway, another noteworthy moment coming out of that one. The doctor who called the fight talked about how he's being harassed and threatened by MMA fans. As unfortunate as that is, though, it's probably not all that surprising either. And I think we can all agree that the type of person who goes after a ringside physician for doing their job, whether you agree with the call or not, is, well, pretty much a shitty person. So there's really no need for me to dedicate a full episode to that. Instead, today I'm talking about Saturday's co-main event, more specifically what happened after it, when Darren Till opened up about the demons he'd been facing before walking out to the fight with Calvin Gastelum. Till got emotional and talked about how terrified he was to go out there with all that was hanging over his head, and said he was even thinking of ways of faking an injury to get out of the co-headliner. This I must say, came from the same guy who built himself up on a platform of unabashed confidence. This was the same guy who, before his career-defining win over Donald Cerrone, was talking about how he wanted to become not only UFC champion, but to be remembered as the greatest fighter who has ever fought in MMA. I'm sure Till hasn't stopped believing those things about himself. But here's the thing about being human. You can have multiple, even seemingly contradictory emotions all at once. And on Saturday, Till reminded us that's what he and all these other people who do what he does for a living are. They're all human. See, being tough is obviously an important asset for a fighter. But being vulnerable? It's pretty cool too. And what Till did, whether it was a conscious move on his part or not, was help show that both these things can absolutely coexist even in an evolving but still largely macho environment like fighting. This type of emotional honesty can be quite powerful in ways that go way beyond the cage if we take the time to build conversations around it. I'm hoping that we can have one of those today. I'd like to start by proposing an exercise. Say you have a job that's like 80% invisible. 
but then the other 20% of it are extremely visible. It's a job that involves testing your body and your mind for months and months, pretty much every day, multiple times a day. And all that hard work is for nothing if, for whatever reason, you can't make all of it come together in the span of 15 minutes. Well, 25 tops. Say your job involves not only performing at peak athletic ability, but also doing it under spotlights and in front of cameras, with thousands of people watching and interacting with you directly inside an arena, and a whole lot more of them doing that indirectly through the screens of their TVs and phones. Imagine your job involves not only doing your best, but having your best be enough to beat someone else's best. Say you only get to really perform the visible part of your job a few times a year. Three or four if you do everything right and if you're also lucky. Say that you only get paid for your job in those occasions. Say you get paid less, half as much really, if you're not successful. As in if you lose. Lose enough times, by the way, and you're at risk of losing your job altogether. And it's not a job that comes by very often. Usually takes quite some time and quite a lot of effort. And again, just a little bit of luck to get it. And there aren't many alternatives to it either. Not many financially attractive ones anyway. Of course, even losing involves some luck. Meaning, it meant that things worked out long enough for you to even be able to get up there. You put your body through a lot to get prepared. And sometimes it betrays you. A need that turns the wrong way at the wrong time, or one that lands in your face the wrong way at the wrong time, that could all be the difference between getting paid any amount for all those months of hard work that you put in. Each snapping or cracking that your body makes has to be carefully assessed. There will be some damage, inevitably, but you have to decide whether it's bad enough to keep you from doing your job. And you have to decide whether it's worth foregoing the money that sits at the end of your contract or just the frail goodwill that you have together if you want to be in good terms with the people responsible for giving you that contract. If you decide to push through it, a lot of times you can't really talk about it because otherwise you won't be allowed to do your job. Or if you don't do it optimally, you'll be accused of making excuses for yourself. And nobody likes excuses, right? Oh yeah, once you get your body close enough to be able to do your job, you have to shrink it down to a very specific number on a scale. Fail to do that and you lose money. But not just that. Everyone will know about your failure. Everyone will have an opinion on it. And they will make damn sure that you're well aware of it. The good news is that in that time you're sitting in a bathtub or in a sauna getting rid of all that water that your body needs to function properly, you have time to go over the names in your division to have a call out ready. That never hurts. It shows personality and you gotta have that. Not just any personality, of course, but one that's just the right amount of confident and humble. It's a tricky balance, really. Oh, it helps to be relatable, but not too much because you want to be inspirational. You have to be gracious if you lose. Oh, and if you win too. We want to see emotion, but you know, don't overdo it. Oh yeah, you might want to learn to speak English, of course, because that's the main market and it's on you to be able to communicate with it. I mean, how hard can it be really to learn an entirely new language? It's a job, man. Comes with the territory. Oh yeah, uh, that's not to mention the part that goes within those 15 or 25 minutes you have to show for your efforts. There's a person in there in a cage with you, and their job is essentially the same as yours. 
There's all the physical stuff that comes with that, of course. You might leave the cage with a broken orbital bone or a gash that cuts all the way through your bone. And there are the other types of implications, right? The less tangible ones. Like, your jaw might be intact after a head kick, but the image of you collapsing under it will be out there. It might be in tweets or in promo packages. That extremely low point of your life might be the glory of someone else's, and there's not much you can do but witness it over and over again. If you don't succeed within those few minutes, it might be months before you get a chance to do it over again. In the meantime, you'll be left facing not only your own doubts and questions, but also everyone else's. Because once you're out there, once you're out in the public, you're fair game, right? And these, by the way, are the problems of the fortunate ones, the ones who made it big enough that people care, the ones who got through the part in which they often have to balance multiple jobs and severely limit their times with their families or their video games or their beds, or they're simply not going to have enough to be able to afford their most basic needs, let alone surgery on, on a torn rotator cuff or a busted shin. Take it all into account. And it's not all that surprising to hear a fighter like Darren Till saying what he said. In fact, if there's anything surprising about this, it's the fact that we don't hear more fighters saying the exact same things. You can often tell how unusual something is by the impact that it has on the news cycle. This weekend, it was Till's comment. But not that long ago, Ronaldo Jacare Souza was the one we were talking about. In an interview with MMA Fighting, he said he'd just gone through a rough patch. He didn't train for months. He dragged himself to the gym only to help his friend, Rodolfo Vieira, but that came at a personal cost. Here's Souza's quote. Three months ago, I was crying on my way to the gym. Tears would come out of my eyes and I didn't know why. What am I doing, man? I'll stop fighting. I don't want this for my life. Souza, it turns out, was dealing with burnout. He started seeing a psychologist and things started to get better. He's now set to meet Jan Blachowicz in the main event of UC Sao Paulo on November 16. And at least when I talked to him on the phone a couple of weeks ago, he seemed to be in a good place. By then, this had already been the main subject of many of his interviews here in Brazil, which in itself is telling, right? There's still a stigma in society in general, but issues like burnout or anxiety or depression, they're not really treated as rarities among non-fighter people, are they? I have recently gone on medication for anxiety, and as soon as I talked about it, I heard from many friends from all over the world who had been on the same type of medication themselves for years. And, okay, no matter how many TED Talks I watch or podcasts I listen to, I'm no mental health expert, but it's safe to say that it's really no wonder. Outside of factors like brain chemistry or genetic predisposition, we live in this extremely connected world. We're constantly comparing ourselves to other people on social media. Jobs are scarce. Financial stability is a pipe dream for most people my age. Nazis are making a comeback and the planet is fucking melting. Of course, we're freaking anxious. Living is pretty goddamn stressful. And it's easy to lose sight of the fact that fighters are not only dealing with all those problems too, but they're doing it in a way that's both physically and mentally demanding and also very publicly. I particularly, I have a tendency to ask fighters about those things in my interviews with them. And I have noticed more and more of them are talking about adopting meditation and yoga and sports coaches and 
albeit more rarely therapy. Still, whenever a fighter, and especially a male fighter, talks about dealing with these things publicly, it is newsworthy. It is newsworthy simply because we don't hear about it all that often, or at least not in those terms. I asked Souza why he decided to go, quote-unquote, public with his information. I asked if it had been a conscious choice. He thought about it for a second and said that he'd always had a lot of, and these were his words, prejudice against psychologists and all that stuff. And that this was his way, perhaps, of, again, these were his words, redeeming himself. He's a very religious guy, so he said God was a part of it. But the way he sees it, what God did was put people who could help him in his way. Like his wife and his training partners and, of course, his psychologist. He said he'd had a lot of feedback from people and that he wanted to show that this could happen to anyone. That every now and then, life gets you down, but that you can get back up. That you can reinvent yourself. And interestingly enough, this is a guy who's achieved so much, right? I mean, Jacare is coming off a tough loss to Jack Hermanson, but he's still one of the world's best fighters. He's been a world champion in jiu-jitsu and at strike force, and he's been a top UFC middleweight for quite a long time. Jacare has said it himself that he could retire with what he's achieved and that he would be cool with that. He has moved with his big, picture-perfect family to the U.S., and he has talked about being happy with the life that they made for themselves there. Looking at it from the outside, you wouldn't figure anything is out of place, really. But something obviously was. And perhaps Jacare himself doesn't even realize how big of a deal it is when he talks about it. I'll use another uh, different example of the specific type of toll that being a fighter can take. Earlier this year, I talked to Shane Crichton before his fight with Daniel Strauss at Bellator 219. Shane, I'll use his first name because obviously I struggle with less names, but yeah, Shane. He was coming off a loss to Aaron Pico, which you might remember as part of Pico's highlight reel, a brutal punch to deliver. Shane was an Iraq war veteran. He had a brush with death while he served, and he was left with PTSD. The devastating loss to Pico sent him back to what he called a dark place. When I talked to him, the whole thing had eventually led him to do some much-needed soul-searching And, you know, ahead of the Strauss fight, he was doing better, but it had to get worse before it got better. Another fighter who talked about his own dealings with the bad post-loss spiral was Ryan Spann. He talked to ESPN earlier this year, before a fight with Little Nog in Sao Paulo at UFC 237. Spann was on a roll then, coming off five straight wins, including his UFC debut, but that was after one particularly bitter loss. In his first Dana White's Contender Series bout in 2019, he was knocked out by Carl Robertson in less than 15 seconds. He was so down at the time, he said, that at times he would pee on a jug and his wife would have to empty it. Nothing got him out of bed, not even his kids. And here's what he told Mark Raimondi at the time about the loss, which, combined with other personal issues, led to a feeling that I'm sure quite a few fighters can relate to. This is a quote, by the way. Literally 98% of my life was spent with martial arts, so I felt like I had no other outlets or really nothing to look forward to. All the money is in the UFC, and that's really the only reason I fight. So when I failed, I was like, I don't know what else to do. I have no other real skills outside of fighting. 
I can't play football anymore. I can't run track anymore. I'm too far out of school. So that's all I really just had. See, I talked to Span myself about it before the Little Knock fight. The video of our conversation is up there on YouTube on the MMA Junkie channel if you want to hear from him. It's kind of heartwarming. He gets emotional when he talks about his kids. But I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here just because I cannot miss the opportunity of a teachable moment. As I went back there to try to find the video of the interview to see what I could use for this episode, I made the mistake of looking at the comment section. One of the comments said about me, the interviewer, and I quote, you can hear the thirst for dick in her voice. Unrelated, I know, but yeah, I just thought it was interesting that I went back to this one interview to do research for a totally unrelated thing. And among four comments, that was one of them. But I digress. Back to the subject at hand. Of course, this is not just a male fighter problem. Just this week, Bellator fighter Leslie Smith was here on this very podcast. I recommend you give it a listen, by the way, because she was awesome. And she talked about her own struggles after the end of her relationship with the UFC. Not only was she at a career low, but she had to deal with all this online feedback. And she said she didn't even want to give interviews for quite some time. She didn't want to use the word depression lightly. But yeah, that's what she could find to describe her experience at the time. I asked if she thought about quitting fighting altogether during those days, and she candidly answered that no, for a few reasons, including the fact that fighting was basically what she's, you know, always known. And that's when we're reminded that, see, being a fighter is not just a job. It's part of someone's identity. It's what helps make the fabric of who they are. And, you know, a lot of what pushes them to get up in the morning and go about their days. I think we lose sight of that sometimes. And that's why I wanted to do that exercise to start the podcast today. Because we all deal with our personal and professional issues, of course. There's always going to be that one person making that argument that, well, fighters shows this for their lives. They have to deal with the consequences, yada, yada. But that's not quite how empathy works, is it? I don't think it takes a particularly sensitive person to understand that high-level athletes of any type deal with a very specific type of pressure and that fighters have some extra layers to that. They have to be not only at the top of their game, but the top of their game has to be better than the game of the other person that's going to be sharing a goddamn cage with them. And if you consider something like MMA, which is part sports, part entertainment, they can't just worry about being good at what they train to do. They have to have something extra. And there's only so much that they can control. There are politics, there's timing, there's a lot of being at the right place at the right time. There's a lot of uncertainty. I am generally a stressed out person and I feel a lot of pressure to be good at things. But here's the thing, say I fall and dislocate my shoulder. I'm gonna be out of commission for a while and it's gonna suck. But I won't have to immediately start doing the math to figure out how I'm going to be able to pay the bills for the entirety of the following year. Barring some exceptional event like a terrible disease, I don't really have to worry about this giant stopwatch haunting me, counting the days until I'm simply no longer able to do what I'm paid to do. Or most importantly, what I like to do. Say I forget where I left my keys or I just don't feel quite like myself at any given day, right? My mind doesn't immediately go to, shit, am I concussed? Is this going to be long-lasting? I don't have that little acronym hanging over my head. 
CTE. Again, you can just shrug it off as, oh, well, it's their choice. We all make ours. We all have our own shit to deal with. And you won't be necessarily wrong, even though for some people, it's not like they had that many choices to begin with. Of course, a lot of fighters, yeah, they choose to do this among all their options. And they love it. And they probably look at what I do and think my existence, staring at a computer screen and figuring out prepositions is miserable. So yeah, you can just choose to have no sympathy for the struggles and their causes whatsoever, but that makes you a little bit of a dick, doesn't it? If you're listening to this, it means that what these people do adds something of value to your life. Whether it's entertainment, if you're a fan, or even a paycheck, if you're one of my peers. And a trap that's very easy to fall into, and it's one that I sometimes do, is to lose sight of the human beings behind the shows that we get to watch and talk and write about. It's really easy to get cynical. But I think even the worst people, you know, the ones who harass fighters on Instagram and refer to women as females, can agree that fighting is a physically and mentally demanding job. And that's not a gender-specific affirmation. If you ask me, it's always cool when somebody opens up about their own struggles with anything because, well, we all struggle and we all want to feel less alone. We want to feel seen and heard and there's a lot of power in this type of community. But I did choose to focus mostly on the men in the sport because, again, no mental health expert, but I do think that I'm not exactly saying anything controversial here when I say that addressing mental health is still a bigger issue for men. I mean, women, and especially women of color, get the short end of the stick in society in basically every way. But suicide rates are still larger among men in most places, like the U.S. or the U.K. And while this isn't by any means a simple conversation to have, and things like access to firearms play a part in why these numbers are the way they are, there's another key factor that goes into it. Communication. To quote a BBC story from March, It is too simplistic to say women are willing to share their problems and men tend to bottle them up. But it is true that, for generations, many societies have encouraged men to be strong and not admit that they're struggling. Meaning, men are not as encouraged as women to open up and discuss their emotions. Men are usually not as comfortable asking for help or admitting when they're feeling vulnerable. With all that's been shifting Thankfully, in society, women are still largely expected to be sensitive, while men, they aren't. Men get lonelier as they get older, because they don't bond emotionally as deeply as women do. They're usually not as comfortable admitting that they're struggling, that they cry in their cars, or that they failed at something, or that they're having trouble being the financial providers that they were often brought up and expected to be. I tried to avoid using the term toxic masculinity here because it became a buzzword and I know that turns people off, but it's hard to deny its role in a largely male-dominated field like MMA where the macho culture is still alive and well. I often talk about how it affects me and other women because it's what I know, right? It's what I live and I can't really speak for other people's experiences. I can't speak, though, from my observations in my decade-long, fuck, I'm old, experience hearing, asking, and writing about these people. And I can speak from my experience listening to all the numerous men in my life, too, who mostly don't fight other men in a cage for a living. 
I can speak as somebody who pays attention because it is my job and it's also my passion. And I can say, based on all of that, that yeah, toxic masculinity hurts men too. But for all the ways in which I'm pessimistic and bummed out about this world, and often about my particular professional environment, I am optimistic about a few things. I am optimistic when I see us having these conversations. I am optimistic when I see not only Darren Till opening up about his fears, but also when I see all the people, men included, responding so well to it. I am optimistic when a guy like Ryan Spann talks about how he couldn't get out of bed after what he perceived as a personal failure, but that he eventually did. I get optimistic when I see a guy like Jacare Souza, who's basically the epitome of a tough guy, saying that he wants people to know that, hey, we're all human and we all go through shit and that it's okay to seek and accept help. Interestingly enough, yesterday, Till was on Ariel Hawani's show and he said something along the lines of, I don't think I'm being vulnerable when I say these things. I'm only being honest. I think he was conflating vulnerability with fragility there, and they're different concepts, but that is also a little telling, isn't it? Because fragile can mean weak, and the last thing you want to be perceived as when you're a fighter is weak. But I'm going to respectfully disagree with Till there. I think he did show a lot of vulnerability in the best of ways. And whether he did it consciously or not, I think he helped show that quote-unquote weakness doesn't look like what we've been taught to believe. The 26-year-old guy coming off two finished losses and an arrest, basically professional and personal turmoil, a guy who at one point of his life was almost fatally stabbed, was terrified. He'd been on top of the world for a few months as MMA's new hottest undefeated thing only to have the rug pulled from under his feet. No wonder he was scared at night, considering he was taking on not only a person in Calvin Gaslam, but also the demons and the weight of doubts and expectations. And yet, Till did it anyway. He went out there to a cage at MSG and he fought one of the top competitors in his entire sport. To one, by the way. But, if you ask me, that is not the coolest thing that he did that night. Well... That will do it for this week's episode. If this one doesn't land me on some incel hit list, I don't know what will. If I go missing, you know what happened. The evidence is out there on some weird chant somewhere. If not, we'll meet here next week for another round of MMA and other stuff. Bye.